0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Lisa Aquilano, an ambulatory care clinical pharmacist at Emory HealthCare, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. With me today are Dr. Katherine Fuller, the ambulatory care clinical pharmacy specialist at the Emory University Hospital Midtown Center for Viral Hepatitis, and she specializes in hepatitis B and hepatitis C. We also have Angie Cox, certified pharmacy technician and medication access specialist in Emory University Hospital Midtown's Department of Pharmacy. Also joining us today is Nicole Chang, physician assistant at the Emory Healthcare Department of Transplant Hepatology and Center for Viral Hepatitis, who specializes in liver transplant, cirrhosis, and hepatitis C. And finally, joining us is Dr. Ryan Ford, the medical director of Emory's Center for Viral Hepatitis. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Fuller, Dr. Ford, Nicole, and Angie. Let's get started talking about today's topic, integration of pharmacy services in an interdisciplinary telehealth environment. Dr. Ford, can you start us off by describing the multidisciplinary viral hepatitis clinic at Emory?
1: Sure, and thanks for having me today. So hepatitis C affects close to probably eight or nine million people in the United States. And uh, you might see lower numbers recorded, but it's felt that uh, we don't account for a lot of the patients um, with hepatitis C, such as the homeless population, incarcerated, et cetera. And so, it's probably closer to eight million patients. And uh, now that we have a multitude of different drugs that are a cure for hepatitis C, it's it's more important than it's ever been to identify the patients who have this disease and offer them a cure. Traditionally it was extremely hard to get patients, number one, to be screened. Number two, once they were screened, to actually have a confirmatory test to prove that they still have the virus. And number three, to then actually be referred to a specialist who is interested or willing in treating patients. And so now that we have cures, we really need to get out there and and screen the masses and improve the ability to actually have these patients see a specialist and be cured. And so if you think about the numbers I just told you, there's not that many hepatologists in the country. And uh, and some infectious disease doctors will also treat hepatitis C, but it's been hard to get some gastroenterologists and also primary care physicians to take an interest in treating hepatitis C. So we don't have enough providers per se to treat 8 million people. And so we need to find better ways to streamline uh, this process. Otherwise, people will just be waiting for appointments that never come. So when we first had direct acting antiviral agents around 2011, it was still a complicated regimen that included interferon and rabivirin. So even though the cure rates were higher and it was exciting, it was a pretty toxic regimen to take. During that time, we knew that if we were going to reach high success rates, we needed to do a sort of a multidisciplinary approach. And so we created a education class at that very point around 2011 here at Emory. And that included a pharmacist and myself who would actually teach the class. And we would have patients come in, and there'd be about eight or 10 patients with family members. And we would go over education about hepatitis C, the complex regimen that we had at that time, the triple therapy uh, with the new protease inhibitors plus interferon and ribavirin. And we were very successful in achieving high cure rates, as high as 85%, which was higher than the registration trials at that time, because we worked together in a multidisciplinary manner. Now that was pre-COVID as well. Well, once the treatment became simpler and we could treat patients without interferon uh, with medications such as Harvoni, um, Epclusa, Maverit, et cetera, we realized that it's much easier to treat and we can treat more people, um, really all people with hepatitis C. It was very hard to find someone who wasn't gonna be a good candidate. And so we didn't need to do the education classes per se where patients had to come in um, because that was not always easy to do, but we did create a hepatitis C multidisciplinary clinic that any of the hepatologists at Emory, if we saw a patient with hepatitis C that we wanted them to be treated, which was almost everybody, we would then streamline them to the hepatitis C clinic here at Emory that was run by Dr. Fuller or Dr. Aquiano, whoever the Pharmacist was at the time. And we also had Jenna Farrar with us early on. And uh, Nicole Chang has been our uh, PA who has helped run this clinic with the pharmacist. So once a hepatologist, we have seven of them at Emory, refers the patients to the Center for Hepatitis. Nicole and Catherine, or whoever our pharmacist was at the time, would run with it. They would get the prior approval for whichever medication we chose. They would educate the patient. The medications would be delivered to the patient's home they would do follow-up labs, adherence, and essentially be cured. And then they could be sent back to the referring hepatologist if they needed ongoing care. So if a hepatologist was too busy to really you know, go through that entire process, it was very simple. If they saw someone that needed treatment, they referred them to the Center for Viral Hepatitis. And it became just like a lot of other diseases, a multidisciplinary sort of one-stop shop is what we wanted to create. And it's been very successful thus far. So we were able to take what used to be a 50% no-show rate for referrals for hepatitis C treatment to just about everybody that comes through Emory that needs treatment is going to get that treatment.
0: Thank you for that overview, Dr. Ford. Um, Nicole, can you tell us
2: more about your role and your experiences in the clinic? Yes, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Dr. Ford. First off, I just want to say that I'm very thankful to be part of our multidisciplinary viral hepatitis clinic, um, as we're really able to provide excellent, comprehensive care to our patients. And as Dr. Ford had said, once a patient has been referred to our center, we set up a meeting with myself, the physician assistant, the pharmacist, and our nurse team. From there, we are able to initiate the process of ordering their medications have any necessary paperwork for insurance or grants filled out at the time while they are in clinic. We are able to go over in detail the process of their treatment, answer questions about their chronic liver disease, and arrange for any further diagnostic testing that may need to be done, such as FibroScan ultrasound or labs, both of which can be done while in our clinic. Lastly, we discussed the schedule and expectations for the patient regarding follow-up labs and return clinic visits. As a multidisciplinary clinic, we are able to streamline their care and allow for almost all their needs to be met at one one time.
0: Thank you, Nicole and Dr. Ford, for describing the clinic and your roles. It's really interesting to hear how you maximize the use of each person on your team. Dr. Fuller and Angie, can you tell us how clinical pharmacy services are an integral part of the interdisciplinary care of the patients in the clinic? We'll start with you, Dr. Fuller.
3: Thank you, Lisa. So prior to COVID, I would see patients face-to-face with our physicians and the level providers in our viral hepatitis or hepatology clinics. And during these visits, I would usually provide the medication education for patients starting new hepatitis B and hepatitis C treatments, perform medication profile reviews, answer any drug-related questions, and certainly make clinical interventions. When I was not seeing patients face-to-face, I conducted hep C and hep B clinical follow-ups via telephone. And so for hep C patients, I would usually touch base within two weeks of starting treatment and every 30 days while on treatment. I would then see patients face-to-face with providers at treatment screening, end of treatment, and cure visits. We have a really strong pharmacy support team through our Emory Specialty Pharmacy where we have pharmacy technicians complete our specialty medication prior authorizations and evaluate patients for our medication grants once the meds are approved. Angie Cox is one of our phenomenal medication access specialists and will share a little bit more about the medication authorization services that she provides to our hepatitis
4: patients. Thank you, Catherine. Um, My role as a medication access specialist is unique in that I work out of multiple systems and with multiple care teams across our healthcare system. All of the systems I utilize are remotely accessible, which allows me to fit right into the telehealth model. As a medication access specialist, I'm responsible for the initial entry of the prescription into the pharmacy software system. From there, I perform a pharmacy benefits investigation and enter the patient into our care management platform, Faragy. This system allows me and my team to track the progress of the prescription as it moves across the system. Once entered into the care management platform, I initiate the prior authorization. We typically use an electronic platform, Cover My Meds, but occasionally a PA will need to be called in or will need to utilize a paper form specific to the plan. I am able to complete and fax these forms completely electronically. Catherine and I work together to ensure that we include the most pertinent clinical information to ensure medication approval through the pharmacy benefit manager. In some cases, an appeal will be needed. This process is mainly handled by Catherine, but I do assist in the follow-up and in, and in resolving any unusual issues that may arise. Um, once we have the prior authorization or the appeal approval, I then work to ensure a successful claim adjudication at either the Emory specialty pharmacy or an outside specialty pharmacy. This includes running the claim and calling the insurance on any secondary rejections. I also follow up with the outside specialty pharmacies to assist in resolving any issues they may be running into. The last part of my process is ensuring financial viability for these patients, either through enrollment in a copay savings card or referral to our Emory medication assistance coordinators to be screened for any other available funds.
0: Thank you, Angie and Dr. Fuller. This is quite a robust program at Emory and it sounds like you're able to practice at the top of your license and that pharmacy services are vital to the team. Changing topics, let's talk about how COVID has changed life as we know it for all of us. How has the clinic structure changed with COVID? Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about that from your perspective?
2: Yes, as we all experienced March of 2020, changed how we practice healthcare. All face-to-face visits were canceled and we transitioned to telehealth initially on the phone, but now through live video visits. So we had to make some significant changes to the way our clinic was practiced. The main challenge we had with transitioning to the telehealth was we lost the ability to provide multiple services with multiple providers on the same day. This significantly slowed our process, but we have been learning and making adjustments and finding ways to streamline where we can. While there were some challenges that were difficult to overcome, we have also learned that offering telehealth visits has increased our accessibility to patients who may not have otherwise been able to ever come to an in-person visit at our clinic. It is a very efficient and convenient way for patients to be seen. At this time, most of our clinic remains telehealth, about 90%, but we are opening up options for in-person urgent visits as needed.
0: Thank you, Nicole. That's some great insight to how COVID has really changed the way we practice medicine and care for our patients. Sounds like there are many positive changes despite the barriers. Dr. Fuller, can you describe the integration of pharmacy services into the telehealth model described by Nicole?
3: Clinical pharmacy services really move from a mix of face-to-face and telephone clinic to a majority telemedicine clinic. Providers predominantly see patients via video, though they will conduct telephone visits if patients are unable to connect via video. So they will initiate a three-way call. The provider normally sends me a link. I'll join second. We will talk about any clinical interventions or I may um, reach out to them through our internal messaging platforms ahead of time with recommendations. At that time, we'll then add the patient onto the call. At the end of the call, after the clinician is done with the visit, I will go ahead and stay on with the patient and follow up on any medication education that's required, any uh, medication questions that the patient has. Once this is completed, we both move on to calling the next scheduled patient. But while I'm on the call and completing the pharmacy task, the mid-level or physician's able to chart and work through their notes and then we're able to move together to the next patient on the list.
0: Thank you, Dr. Fuller. Even though COVID has changed the way you interface with patients, it sounds like you've risen to the challenge to be able to offer exceptional and efficient patient care during this time. The next question is for Dr. Ford and Nicole. Um, What are some clinical and operational challenges in telehealth and what strategies have you taken to mitigate them? Dr. Ford, we'd like to start with you.
1: Sure. So the first thing that That needs to be said about anytime you change a model of practice is what about the third party payers so when covid hit the third party payers were open to reimbursing us fully for telemedicine visits as you would for a normal visit and that has continued to be the case so as long as that continues to be the case i think telemedicine is here to stay in some capacity because there's a lot of pros and a few cons to it And so ultimately I think we'll end up with a hybrid model of still having telemedicine options for some patients and still having some of the traditional face-to-face time. So one thing that operationally is important to understand is we're also a large center where we get referrals from out of state in the Southeast. So we're in Georgia, but we do see patients from Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, and even Florida. So we did have to obtain licensing Um, which was sort of temporary licensing during the pandemic to allow us to treat patients who are in those states. And so there were a couple of logistics where sometimes a patient, if they were in a state that you weren't licensed in, you had to kind of ask, is that something we can continue to do? Or or you can do the visit, but you're not going to bill for it. So those are a couple of operational things to keep in mind. And we'll have to see what the future looks like. Because if you do go on to need to be licensed in multiple states, that can be pretty laborious. In our group of seven or eight hepatologists, we decided to give one state to each provider so that we could just kind of do paperwork for one state. And of course, if someone needs to be seen from North Carolina, then the North Carolina MD could be the one who signs off on that. There is a a bit of a learning curve for the older generations. You look at hepatitis C and the largest burden of that disease is the baby boomers, uh, not all of which are tech savvy. Some will surprise you, however, um, so that is something you have to be willing to adapt if an internet connection is bad or a patient just doesn't have a smartphone or a computer, then you might have to do a telephone visit. And then you still get into the whole question of reimbursement for that. Nicole can speak to this, but the one challenge is it's great to be able to just reach someone in their home. They don't have to drive from a distance. You can have the same impact through FaceTime on the media. But it is sometimes a challenge to get labs and radiology. And, and those were things we used to get all at the same time if they came face to face. So sometimes you'll see a patient and you don't have the labs to talk about. You might have to call them back um, once you direct them with how to get the lab results. A challenge for providers is that you have to be on time. And it's not that we try to be late, but you can imagine if you're scheduled for a telemedicine appointment at 9 a.m., but the person you were on with at 8.30 a.m. is going overtime. It's different than when you're in clinic and maybe you knock on a door and say I'll be in shortly. Patients are sitting there ready at 9 a.m. sharp and if you're not sending a text link or logging in, then sometimes I think they just need to be prepped that it might be a few minutes delayed depending on the patient prior. And so I think those are some of the operational things um, that I've noticed at least in the last you know year.
2: And I'll go ahead and just follow up a little bit on the clinical challenges that we've had and how we are overcoming them. Telehealth, in general, for clinical practice is very challenging, but we are learning and improving as we go. One of the improvements we have made is creating a role of the telehealth coordinator. This person helps with the clinic flow that Dr. Ford was just referring to regarding making sure you're on time for your patient. This coordinator will reach out to the patient ahead of the appointment time prepares them for the video, and has them ready to go at their scheduled time. This helps to eliminate the stress and worry for the patient about trying to connect to their visit, and it helps the provider to stay on time and efficient. This has been one piece that we have learned to be very helpful. Adjusting to telehealth has also required us to step back and re-examine our workflow our requirements of labs and clinic visits and try to make it as concise and streamlined as possible.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ford and Nicole, some great insight. Dr. Ford, in your experience, how has a move to telehealth transformed the patient care model?
1: Well, without question, and especially when it comes to viral hepatitis, we're able to reach people that we otherwise would not have reached prior to The direct acting antiviral agents, and prior to COVID, frankly, you might have a fifty percent no show rate if a patient was found to be hepatitis C antibody positive and referred to a specialist. So, some of that was social stigma as well. A patient is told they have hepatitis C, they don't have any symptoms, they feel that everyone's going to judge them. That oh, is this because they use drugs? Even though that we know that that's not always the case. Um, And so, coming up and sitting in a waiting room of a hepatitis C clinic might be a bit unnerving for some patients, but when it's just a text link, uh Doximity or Zoom call in the comfort of their home, it can be much more private. And so it's rare that we have no shows uh, to these types of appointments. So I haven't looked at the, the total numbers, but my personal experience is I almost never have a patient not show. Uh, whereas in the past, you, you always would walk into an in-clinic and whether it was traffic or weather there would be people who wouldn't show. So I think we're having a bigger impact at, at number one, better adherence with appointments that and seeing people who are referred. I also think that we're able to reach the underserved populations and patients that live a farther distance away. I'll give you an example of a patient, a real patient I saw many years ago. And and you just think about the logistics of it. Um, Again, we're in Atlanta, but South Georgia can be four and a half, five hours away. So I had a patient who was found to be hepatitis C antibody positive. She was told she wanted needed to go see a specialist who happened to be me. And so she drove for five and a half hours looked for parking in a big city that she's not used to, went through all the process of getting roomed. And I walked in, looked at her records, talked to her a bit and found out she's hepatitis C antibody positive, but we don't know if she actually has hepatitis C. What she needs is a PCR to confirm it. And as it turns out, she didn't even have hepatitis C the PCR was negative. And that's quite a bit of expense and time and distance that was unnecessary that easily could have been handled through a quick telemedicine or even a phone call and so i think that by doing this it's here to stay and there's definitely there's patients that are going to prefer this option if given a choice there's others that do want to be seen and they might want to be you know they might live nearby or sometimes there might be a physical exam finding that's going to be important you know surprisingly with hepatitis we use a lot of labs a lot of imaging The physical exam can be important, but it's not as crucial as, say, a cardiologist listening to a heart murmur. A final thing that I'll mention is not only reaching people who are far away or underserved, but think about the busy patient who just can't find the time, and yet it's an important diagnosis to address, especially in an asymptomatic disease. So let's use me as an example. Let's say that I was found to be hepatitis C antibody positive. This is just hypothetical. I'm very busy. It's hard enough for me to go get my own annual physical exam. Um, But I feel fine. So I'm not compelled because I don't have like a sore shoulder or something. Um, But if I was able to just log into a quick telemedicine with a provider, they tell me to go get a confirmatory test. Oh, it turns out I do have hep C. They're going to mail me Harvoni. I'll take it. I'll cure it and I'll be done with it. I'm much more likely to comply. And so I think it's very convenient for a lot of different patient scenarios.
0: Thank you, Dr. Ford. I'm sure that the patients who previously experienced transportation and other access barriers are welcoming this change. And it sounds like your team is really taking advantage of the positive changes, as well as working with the challenges that COVID has introduced. Well, it's a good idea to not only to discuss the impact that telehealth has had on our patients and working environment, but also on our learners. Being an academic medical center, I assume you all teach and precept many learners. How have you effectively integrated students, residents, and fellows into the telehealth model? Dr. Ford?
1: It's a good question, and this is probably the hardest one, and I don't know if we've successfully integrated. I can tell you what my experience is, but I haven't seen any follow-up evaluations over the last year. I haven't worked with a lot of students in this capacity, but certainly we have residents and some fellows who rotate through. Traditionally, they would come and follow you in clinic and kind of see how you interact with patients in person, and then you would have points of discussion that you could teach um, there at the bedside. And so clearly that's that's missing. Uh, and yet you also, residents and fellows, as they're more advanced in their training, need the opportunity to sort of do an encounter on their own, not just shadow or follow. And so what I've been doing is if I have a clinic of eight patients for a half-day session, I'll assign four of those patients to the resident or fellow, have them sort of you know, read up on them and we'll go over any questions they have and then have them initiate the telemedicine visit uh, informing the patient that I will do a follow-up uh, phone call or video afterwards just to uh, see if there's any lingering questions and that allows the resident to have some autonomy and then we can have discussion after if there's any teaching points it's all through the telephone or video um, and then the patients um, so far have been fine with me then following up and uh, asking if there's any other questions and just clarifying the plan that's what we've been doing. I don't know if that's uh, what the residents like. And I have seen some people suggest that you do the telemedicine, but the resident or fellow is in your office behind you. Um, So they're actually seeing how you're interacting. And then maybe that provides a little more conversation time. I would say it's going to be provider dependent because one thing we didn't mention is telemedicine is also embraced by a lot of providers. Maybe some of them hate it, but others love it because they can do it from the comfort of their own home
0: guess you don't want a student with you at your house then.
1: <laughs> right, exactly.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ford. Dr. Fuller, can you provide us some insight on how this looks when precepting pharmacy students and residents? So during COVID,
3: I have my pharmacy students and residents telecommute from home some days and then be on site other days. I normally spend the first bit of time modeling what pharmacist services look like in telehealth I'll observe them for a time and then give them their independence on the telehealth call with Nicole, Dr. Ford, or one of my other providers. In traditional clinic visits, learners could always step out of the exam room and come get the preceptor if something urgent came up. But we found in telehealth visits, sometimes patients are unreachable for follow-up calls immediately after, um, especially if they had low bandwidth for the call initially or had a, a call drop. So I found it's very important that learners have access to their preceptor via messaging platforms if something urgent comes up during the telehealth visits.
0: Catherine, what tips would you give to other interdisciplinary models for optimizing student and resident learning on pharmacy ambulatory care rotations?
3: It really starts with having a solid orientation for your learners. I find that learners are more engaged and a lot more successful, I really provide solid groundwork for them early on. I share tips and tricks for successful telehealth encounters and ensure that they have fully charged and compatible electronic devices to log into these telehealth visits. I also talk on um, specific coaching techniques on how to build rapport with providers and effectively communicate with people that they'll maybe never meet face-to-face on their four- or five-week rotations. I also let my providers know that I'll have a learner on rotation and arrange a of virtual introduction on the first clinic day when we're all in clinic together virtually. On rotation, my learners will message the providers a patient case summary and clinical recommendations in our Microsoft Teams application prior to the patient visit, and then ultimately take my role on the telehealth calls once they're competent. And finally, tailoring the rotation and really providing exceptional support to learners during this unique season of training in COVID-19 is imperative for a successful and rewarding learning experience.
0: That is some vital information we could all use and possibly implement in our own clinic settings. Thank you, Dr. Fuller. That's all the time we have today. I wanna thank Dr. Fuller, Dr. Ford, Nicole, and Angie for joining us today to discuss the integration of pharmacy services in an interdisciplinary telehealth environment. Join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes and download the episode transcript.